We're having a meeting, and uh, we're commenting on how many young people are here, which is awesome. It's just great to see. And I said, sitting next to my wife, that's what happens when you have a really hip, cool couple. And one of the leaders goes, lead music. That hurt. Um, Hey, it has been great to be with you. Uh, We love Hume. We love getting away like this. Our theme has been first things and second things. That's C.S. Lewis. Get the first things in place, the second things follow. It might be good this morning before we take a look at spiritual battle to talk about the ultimate first thing, the first thing that sets everything else in place, and that is what is your relationship with God? The Bible tells an amazing story that God is love. One of the clearest descriptions in the New Testament is that God is love. He wanted to express that love, and so he created the cosmos. He created stars and animals and uh, molecules. But then he wanted to create something that would most reflect who he was. And he created a man and a woman. He created Adam and Eve that fully reflects what the Trinity is like. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. So you were created to live in fellowship with God in a place called paradise that you would experience not partial love but full love. Not partial acceptance, but full acceptance. Not meaning that can sometimes go away depending on how the job goes or if we're facing a pandemic that year, but you were to experience a peace that would never leave. But because God is love, and he knows that love can't be forced, he gave us something called free will. That is one of the defining characteristics of us as people, is that we can choose to do something or not do something. If I were to say to you, You have the freedom to leave this talk at any time you want to, and yet the leaders of Hume have locked every door. You would say, well, you gave me a choice, but I can never exercise the choice. So God gave us a choice, and the choice is this. I will not force you to stay in a relationship with me. I want you to, but I give you the freedom to leave if you want to. And tragically, the first human beings decided to do that, to go on their own, and with that, came a host of repercussions. If you really want to know what those repercussions look like, just turn on the evening news. I mean, it's not just stuff like pandemics and cancer, and those are things that never existed in the garden, but even more than that, it's human rebellion. It's one country invading another, it's sex trafficking, it's uh, the fact that there's more slaves today than any period in human history. It affects every part of us. It affects uh, how we do work, how we treat each other, how we talk about each other, how we view love, sex, romance, marriage. And it doesn't mean that your life has to be objectively pitiful. See, one of God's greatest gifts is he didn't abandon us. No, he gives us a, a hint of what love looks like. We can take that love and we can love our spouses and love our children. He can give us an idea of what peace looks like and we can create the United Nations. We can create something like NATO. But always in the backdrop, we have the sinking feeling something's not right. When the great theologians, Augustine of the ancient church, put it this way, our hearts are restless till they find peace in God. Now, we can temporarily find peace in a whole lot of things. Marriage, and then you do the hard work of marriage, and you're like, oh, man, this is a lot harder than I thought. Parenting, awesome, until you hit the teenage years, right? Um, Every new president's awesome, and then life just sets in. It's really hard to govern really diverse people. In the backdrop, God is always saying, come back to me. Come back to me. 
I'm concerned about this world. The ultimate expression of God's love wasn't creating you, it was sending Jesus. God was so concerned about the rebellion that he came. See, this is what sets Christianity apart from any other world religion. Every religion talks about Jesus with high regard, but the Bible says, no, no, God loved you enough that he took on human form. He came. Remember that story I told about the factory? Me going and working in the factory for a summer, and there was something about the factory that caused me to view my dad in a different kind of way? God did the ultimate expression of that. He became a human being. He wasn't play acting. He was a human being. He set aside full access to his power, so he was betrayed by those he loved. He was beaten, unfairly judged, ultimately died. Then he rose from the dead, proving that he is, in fact, God can offer salvation. And that is what God offers you right now. He offers you a chance to come back to him. Now, let me just say a couple of disclaimers real quick. If you pray to receive Jesus, it doesn't automatically fix your marriage. Right? You're still selfish. You still got bad habits. You still have those disagreements. But now God takes up residence inside of you. Now you're working with his power. See, a lot of us, we've been trying to do this on our own. I got to be more patient. I got to be more kind. I can't have a temper. I can't blah, 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 blah. And we can do a little bit of it, but we always sink right back because we're doing it out of our power. Jesus says, I'll give you a different kind of power. I'll give you a power that when you tap into it, suddenly you can love people, not conditionally, but unconditionally. Still a struggle. None of us are perfect. Here's the cool thing about Christianity. You can have it today. You can actually have it today. Very few religions can say that. Jesus says today is the day of salvation. So in one way, embracing Jesus is incredibly simple, but really hard. It's incredibly simple because this is between you and God right now. God knows your heart. He knows exactly what you believe and don't believe. He offers you salvation today. Jesus says this, come to me, admit you're not God. Admit that you're sinful. All we mean by sinful in the New Testament is you've missed God's mark. You've missed it. You are not living the purpose that he designed you for. You're you're experiencing partial love, partial peace. He wants to give you the real deal. Now, here's the hard part. You got to bend your knee to the king. And Americans, we don't like that. But we come to God and we say, God, you're God. I'm not. You get to define life. I don't. But I know you have your best my best interest. So I embrace Jesus right now. I accept what Jesus did 2,000 years ago. He died for me on a cross. He died for my sins, past, present, future. And now I'm going to become a new creation. I'm going to ask Jesus to be my savior. This is between you and God right now. You don't need to close your eyes. You don't need to kneel. You don't need to walk around the lake. This is a holy moment right now, and God is ready to do business if you're ready to do business. So the first step is to say, God, I want you. And then later, we can talk about what does it mean to grow in this Christian faith. I'm going to pray a prayer. It's not a magical prayer. Um, Christians have prayed different kinds of prayer. But this is going to get the gist of the gospel. I'm going to say it real quick. And then if you want to pray it, you can pray it silently. Lord Jesus, I need you. Thank you, dying on the cross for my sins. I realize I'm sinful. I realize that I'm separated. Today, I embrace Jesus as my Savior. And I embrace his forgiveness of all the sins I've ever committed, past, present, future. I want to be a child of God. Then we say amen, which means in the Greek, so be it. So I'm going to pray that prayer again. You don't need to close your eyes. You don't need to say it out loud because God's listening right now at a heart level. So I'm going to say it again. I probably won't even say it perfectly the first time. But you say it silently, and then we'll talk about what to do right afterwards. 
Lord Jesus, I need you. Thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. I recognize that I'm a sinner. Uh, I need your peace. I need your love. I need your forgiveness. I ask right now that you give it to me. I embrace you as my Savior. Show me how to live this life. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if you did this, you didn't suddenly become a better spouse. And your kids didn't become more obedient. And your 501K, well, right? But now God is with you. And he will never, ever leave you. Right? So now what to do? Here's what we'd like for you to do. Sometime today, tell somebody about this. Just say, you know what? I did it. I did what that bald-headed, sharp, hip, cool speaker said, just tell somebody, then there's going to be a Hume evaluation. Would you just go ahead and there'll be a box to say, I did uh, initiate a relationship with Jesus. Put your contact information and Hume would like to get a hold of you of what to do next. All right, make sense? Now, here's the really bad news. Satan listened to every single thing I was saying. He didn't have access to your heart like God does. He doesn't know your thoughts like God does, but he can plant thoughts. So uh, if we are to be biblical, there is a cosmic war being played out today. Not just between Ukraine and Russia, but between spiritual forces. This has been going on for a very long time, and it's a very real fight. Ultimately, God's going to win. But we're not there yet. We're in the middle of this battle. So we need to know, as Christians, we've got a target on our back. It is crazy how we don't talk about this. So imagine you've been run, um, training for a marathon for an entire year, and now the day of the race is here. Right? So now you're, you're lined up with your friends that you've been training with. Your trainer runs over, because he's been working with you, and he goes, hey, listen, you guys are going to do so great uh, in this marathon, but I just want to say something real quick. I didn't want to freak you out, so I didn't mention it earlier. All along the race route, there's going to be people trying to trip you up, discourage you, sabotage you, maybe even harm you, but I didn't want to freak you out. You're going to do great. <laughs> You'd be like, wait, what? 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 Go. And you're like, what? I didn't want to freak you out. It is amazing how we don't talk about what Jesus talked about. 25% of everything Jesus had to say had to do with spiritual battle. Every New Testament writer mentions it. John goes so far as to say, all the world lies in the power of the evil one. And we are fighting against that power. So here's what I want to do this morning. We have to have our antennas up. I'm not blaming everything on Satan. But I think that ancient church would have said, when in doubt, assume spiritual battles at play. The modern church says, you got to prove this to me. you got to prove to me spiritual battle is happening. I think Paul would have said, did you get angry last night? And is it unresolved? Guess what? Satan got a foothold. Paul says this, do not let the sun go down on your anger as not to give the devil a foothold. So we're going to talk about how to diagnose the demonic. Um, and I know this might sound really weird for you. It's really weird to write this book. And I even was warned by a couple people, do you really want to be the devil guy, be known as the devil guy? But it's like, are we really afraid of what God's word teaches? So defending our marriage against spiritual attack. Next slide. Um, here are some questions I had when I wrote the book. Who is Satan, and why would he care about my marriage? Like, why would he care about the much lofts? 
Why would he care about me and Noreen and our three kids? Like, why are we even important to him? I think that's interesting to think about. Second, can Satan read my mind? Can he plant thoughts? We need to address that biblically. Uh, there's good news and bad news when we consider that. How can I determine if spiritual opposition is occurring? Or we just have teenagers, right? I'm sure Satan sometimes is like, that is not me. That is not me. What am I, what did I get blamed for? I don't know where your car keys are. I don't know where they are, right? But what are some telltale signs that something else is happening that is fueling this disagreement or division or something like that? Last, as couples, more importantly, how can we fight back? Okay, next slide. Uh, Clint Arnold is so cool to teach at Biola University. You get some of the top theologians in the world. Clint Arnold, the former president of our seminary, Talbot, has written one of the finest uh, commentaries on Ephesians. He writes about spiritual battle. I read this in a great book called Three Qu Crucial Questions About Spiritual Battle that thoroughly convicted me, so I thought I would convict you, tag, you're it. This is what he says. On this topic of spiritual battle, some of us suffer a double-mindedness. Although mental assent is given to the likelihood that evil spirits exist, since it's affirmed in the Bible, in reality it makes no practical difference in the way that we live our day-to-day -day lives. Biola University, they're serious about their professors believing in the Bible, so every year I have to re-sign the doctoral statement. Even though I have tenure, I have to re-sign it every single year. One question says this, do you believe in a personal devil? The answer is yes. Um, then they should have more questions. I've actually said this to our president. We should have more questions. Based on how you answered the previous question, do you believe in the devil, uh, does it change how you teach in your classes? Um, yeesh, no. Does it change how you do marriage? Um, not really. Does it change how you parent? Right, do you see that? That's what he's talking about, the double-mindedness. If I did a survey right now and asked, do you believe in the devil? I suspect we'd be, what, in the 80, 90 percentile? Now the second question is, does it make any difference in how you do anything in life? That's the kind of double-mindedness I think Clint Arnold's trying to get at next. Uh, so here's what I think we do as Americans. We go one or two routes. Either we totally make fun of Satan, or we paint him in this crazy uh, occult-type uh, perspective. The, the, fun side of goofing around with Satan is like Gary Larson's The Far Side, right? Here's two demons looking at a guy whistling while he works in hell, and one demon says, you know, we're just not reaching that guy, okay? The other one is The Exorcist, right? Levitating person, speaking in guttural Latin phrases, right? So I think Satan's happy with either. Hey, make fun of me, that's great, or make me out into this occult, demonic, um, I see dead people, right? I can live with both. And the reason the American church is there, remember Flip Wilson, that great uh, comedian who, who always would say, the devil made me do it. See, that's, I think, we're afraid. Like, if we introduce this at a marriage conference, then your spouse has a perpetual out. Like, hey, what, yesterday we were packing for Hume, and you got all irritated at me. Honey, I know. It wasn't me. It was a demonic force of packing. It was the devil of packing, right? So we're afraid of that, of giving a perpetual out, but the Bible is not afraid to do that. It's not afraid to link anger with demonic activity. It doesn't always mean it happens. We're going to have to be, have discernment, right? Next. Uh, skip this one. 
It'll change your life. Okay, so helmet tiliki. Helmet tiliki, by the way, so powerful it's 9-11 today. After World War II, which, by the way, did a number on everybody. You talk about hinge moments. Uh, World War II was a hinge moment in human history, right? People did not know what to do. They couldn't believe we could treat each other that way. How many millions and millions and millions of people died? Helmut Tillichy was a German pastor who had never preached on spiritual battle and now decided to do a very famous sermon series on spiritual battle at the end of World War II. This is what he says. Year by year, we have seen an increasingly poisonous atmosphere settle down upon our globe, and we sense how real and almost tangible are the evil spirits in the air. The overwhelming power of these experiences is so strong that it simply breaks through all the intellectual insulation which we are so prone to interpose in order to keep out these dark powers. After World War II, it's pretty hard not to believe in a devil. And I gotta tell you, looking at what's happening today, something's going on. Something politics can't fix, something money can't fix, right? There's something happening in the background and we need to uh, uh, respond to it. Next. Uh, so we know that we are children of God, this is John, and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. Theologians have really wrestled, what do you mean the whole world is under the control of the evil one? I thought God was in control. So here's what many theologians believe. He, Satan traffics in really big ideas, like the sexual revolution of the 60s, right, where we just kind of threw away Puritan ethics. That could be a hinge moment where Satan is working in really big um, moments. Uh, let me mention another one, technology. I don't think Satan created technology. You better believe he's using it. When we talk about the pornification of America, that is via technology. When we talk about depression rates at an all-time high, we're talking Facebook. Now, is Facebook in and of itself bad? No, it can be great, but Satan can use it just like we can use it. So Satan is trafficking in really big ideas, and demons are fallen angels. See, the Bible says there was a rebellion against God. Of course, Satan lost. He was banished, and with him were angels that joined in that rebellion. Those are what we call demons. Uh, Satan most likely has no idea who you are. Um, he, he doesn't traffic that localized. But demons absolutely do traffic locally. Right? So we have to be careful uh, of how to uh, discern demonic activity if it's happening. Next. All right, so who is Satan? Very quickly. Why does he care about my relationship? He doesn't. He does not care about you. You are so far down, he doesn't care. He just cares about God. And he knows he can't hurt God. So best way to get at the Milhoffs, me and Noreen, hurt our kids. Right? We'd say it. Every parent, I'd take a bullet for my child. Right? So Satan doesn't care about you. He wants to hurt God. So best way to do it is he goes after God's children goes after you and tries to cause pain, turmoil, discord. And the cool thing about God is he experiences pain. Right? And we think of Jesus in front of Jerusalem, weeping. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, I would have gathered you in my arms. You would not. Jesus weeping in the Garden of Gethsemane. So Satan only cares about causing pain to God, and he's trying to do it in your marriages. Right? Next, uh, how does he gain access and how can I be sure this is spiritual battle? You probably can't be sure this is spiritual battle, right? We're always going to have to discern that. But remember, the ancient church would say, when in doubt, assume it's happening. If you're, a, if you're at a Christian marriage conference, 
at Hume Lake and you want to better your marriage, guess what? You just rose to the top of the list. That's who Satan's going after. That's who demons are going after. And if you lead Hume Lake, you're at the top of the top. Right? Satan's always been really good to go after leadership. Okay, so we need to pray for our leaders. Remember Hebrews, pray for your leaders. 80% of pastors today are ready to walk. If they could do it financially, they'd walk today. We need to walk up to them and say, look, I know we have our differences. You need to know we're praying for you. We're praying for your family. Uh, thank you for having a job nobody wants. Right? So we're, we're, we're praying for you. We just need to be able to do that. Okay, next. All right, diagnosing the demonic. We're going to take a look at the top five signs of the demonic based on books I've read from trusted Christian authors. Here are the top five that everybody mentioned. I thought that was kind of interesting. Let's read a bunch of books about spiritual battle from uh, quality Christian authors. And would all of them mention something? All of them mentioned five different things. That'll be our top five. But before we do that, we've got to answer a very interesting question. How does Satan get access to you? How do demons get access? Next. Oh, so these are the, some of the books that I've read. I think these are the trusted ones. There are some crazy books on spiritual battle that I think will get you off in areas that concern people biblically. Next. So, can Satan plant thoughts? Theologian Keith Fernando, after studying the reality of spiritual warfare in both the Old and New Testament, concludes, a critical theater of the mind, uh, I'm sorry, a critical theater of the believer's spiritual warfare is a battle for the mind. So, Satan is not omniscient. He cannot read your mind. Demons cannot read your mind. Only God's omniscient. But it seems like he can plant thoughts. Demons can plant thoughts. Let's take a look at um, a sampling of biblical evidence. Next. So, Satan rose up against Israel and incited David to take a census of Israel. First Chronicles. Nothing wrong with knowing troop strength. But David, we know from First Chronicles, has shifted his confidence from God to truth strength, and Satan had incited him to do that. Next, uh, Satan put the idea of betrayal in the heart of Judas. Satan placed greed into the mind of Ananias to lie about the amount of an offering to the church. Here's a really interesting one. A lot of evidence that Satan had the ability to plant thoughts in Jesus' mind, right? In Matthew 4, during his wilderness tempting, Satan takes Jesus up to the top of a mountain and shows him the splendor of all earthly kingdoms. We've actually been on this mountain. Not a big mountain. Can't see, all, can't see earthly kingdoms from this mountain. So people believe, Clint Arnold included, Satan gave Jesus a panoramic view of all earthly kingdoms, past, present, future, and said to him, I can give you these kingdoms. Very interesting Jesus' response. He does not disagree that Satan can give him the kingdoms. He just simply says, I'm going to get it a different way. I'm going to get it through love, not conquest. Right? But interesting that even Jesus got the panoramic view. So the number one place and all five we're going to look at have to do with your thought life. That's why Paul's going to say in the New Testament, you need to take your thought life captive. You need to learn to control your thoughts. In martial arts training, breathing is the number one thing we do. You breathe to control your emotions, because if your emotions go crazy, you're going to forget everything you just learned. We need to spiritually breathe. When these thoughts start to come, we need to put on the armor of God, uh, but we need to respond to these. So let's take a look at the five. Ah, we're out of time. Sorry. Uh, no, I'm kidding. Yes, let's look at the five. Here we go. Uh, well, first, from Luther, the devil throws hideous thoughts in the soul, hatred of God, blasphemy, despair. 
He disputes with me and makes, and makes me give birth to all kinds of strange thoughts. So Luther recognized something was happening in his thought life. All right, let's take a look at these. Most common signs of spiritual opposition, uncontrolled anger, not anger. Anger is a strong human emotion. Uh, the ancients even called anger the moral emotion, which meant there are things we ought to get mad about. There are things we look at in this world and we say, that is just flat out wrong and I'm angry. Right? We just spent uh, breakfast with a couple where she's working with sex trafficking and just horrendous stories of sex trafficking. We should get mad. We should have righteous anger that, that young women are being treated that way, right? Now, this is uncontrolled anger. This is anger. You can't reel it in, right? You go to bed angry at that person, and you wake up in the morning, you are angry. It, it literally consumes you. How many of you have been there? I've been there. I just I keep thinking about this person, and it just makes me mad at what happened to me. Now, by the way, what happened to you might have been wrong. 100% wrong what that person did or said. Satan doesn't care about that. He just wants you to be consumed by it. See, that's the foothold. Paul says, don't let the sun go down in your anger. He's not talking about literal time of day, like, oh, crud, we've got two hours till sunset. You know what I mean? He's saying, in a timely fashion, deal with this anger, it's going to consume you. So if you feel consumed, every time something comes on TV, you get ticked. Your spouse tries to bring up an issue, and you learn pretty quickly, that's the issue we don't talk about in this marriage, because I get ticked pretty quick, and your, your spouse learns that. That could be demonic activity that we need to stop and we need to say, one, it could be my personality and remember all the bricolage things of growing up in a family, whatever, but it also could be demonic activity that a demon is pouring gasoline on your anger. And if we determine that, we're going to pray warfare prayers, right? God's given us great strength in the spiritual battle. We'll take a look. We'll conclude that with what we call warfare prayers. All right, so uncontrolled anger. Next, sense of impending doom. This is an interesting one. Um, it is okay to be anxious. Uh, well, not anxious, discerning. Like, like, it's okay to say, I don't know, can we afford this trip? Uh, should we let the kids go overseas on a missions trip? Should we do X, Y, and Z? Book of Proverbs is all about discernment, and it's okay to think, oh, I think we're going to let him go on this missions trip. Uh, that just kind of makes me worried a little bit. That's okay. I don't think that's spiritual battle. Spiritual battle is every time you think about taking a faith step, you paint the worst-case scenario, right? It is. The pastor says, hey, guess what? We're facing a pandemic. We're kind of low in giving. Would you consider giving just a little bit more? Your spouse is like, that sounds great. And you're like, nope, we can't do it. If we do that... We're gonna, we don't, won't have savings. We're gonna, what if an emergency happens? Uh, we're not gonna let our son go overseas because this could happen. Uh, um, a Brittany Griner situation, right? Which is horrific. And so suddenly you're paralyzed. Every time you think about something, you paint the worst case scenario. That's what they mean by impending doom. And it could be that a demon is going, I'm, I'm giving you worst case scenarios 24 seven. Some of it is just good discernment. I'm not letting my child go to Russia right now, Milha family, right, because of the Brittany Griner situation. Americans are targets, right? But that could be discernment. But, Dad, I want to go to Canada. No, no, what if they waged war against us? You know, it's like, <laughs> Canada? Yeah, Canada. 
right? Or say, okay, now something might be happening. You know what I mean? Next. Boy, this is it. Um, I didn't put these in any particular order. I need to change that because Charles Kraft, who wrote 20 books on this topic, he used to teach at Biola, um, he said, you want to know the number one way demon gets access? Lack of forgiveness. You won't forgive a person. Number one way, according to Charles Kraft, Satan gets a foothold, is you're mad at this person, right? Now, it's okay to be upset with a person who has wronged you, and you may well be owed an apology by that person, but now you are, that, you can't get away from it, and I will not forgive that person, right? You sit in church, and you hear a talk on forgiveness, and you're like, doesn't apply to that person. I'm willing to forgive other people. Doesn't apply to that person. And a demon's like, awesome, we got our foothold. We got our foothold. Now I can go deeper because of your lack of forgiveness. Next. This is weird. Violent. So everybody mentioned violent dreams. That's why I put it on the list. Everybody who talked about demonic activity talked about violent dreams. Now, I must say, I'm prone to this a little bit. I've been an interim teaching pastor at two different churches. One time, the very first time they asked, I said I would think about it. Boy, adding that to being a professor... That could be interesting. So I started to have violent dreams. I mean, crazy violent dreams. People were coming up the stairs to our bedroom not to rob us, to kill us. I literally get out of bed, my heart's pounding, and I'm standing by the door, ready for these people to come through. And then I'm just standing there going, wait, why didn't the dog bark? Like, we have an alarm. What the heck? I open it up, I peek, nobody's there. Now, let me tell you why I wrote the book. The elder from this church calls, he's the head of the elder team, and he said, hey, just want you to know we're praying for you for this decision and anything we can pray for. I do everything, and I had this violent dream the night before. I'm not mentioning the violent dream to him. Why? I don't know. I was embarrassed by it. I don't know. Just as he's about to hang up, I said, hey, ah, can I mention something? He goes, sure. I go, I've been having these crazy violent dreams. Silence on the end of the phone. He goes, Tim, this is spiritual battle. We're calling the elders together. You need to come to the church tonight to pray. That's why I wrote the book. Why as a Christian was I embarrassed to mention that to an elder who asked to pray for me? That's why I wrote Defending Your Marriage. Okay, so violent dreams. You no longer believe the best about God. There was a time you really did believe God was on your side. You really did believe God's looking out for us. He's got our back. But remember what I said from Philiancy yesterday. It either took one big setback, right? Uh, listen, we're walking a friend through cancer. I I've never seen anything like this. I've never walked a friend through cancer. But now I'm working with abused women. Uh, I I'll never forget the day I was doing a training, and a woman just raised her hand. She said, can I ask a question? I said, of course. Did God where was God during my abuse? I said, well, um, we, we believe that God is present, so he knew about it. Yes. Is it fair to say he watched it? Uh, yes, I think that's fair. Why didn't he stop it? Wow, that's a hard question, right? For a woman like that, it took, it took one abuse. I'm done with God. I'm done. Yancey also said it's a thousand small disappointments that just accumulate. You no longer believe the best about God. Let me say, that's Gen Z today. One of the top researchers on deconversion, people leaving Christianity, is at Biola University, John Marion. You've got to write this book down. The book is called The Recipe for Disaster. He wrote it about Gen Z leaving the faith in droves. In droves, they're leaving Christianity. 
partly because God doesn't make sense anymore. This doesn't work. You're telling me God loves me, he's powerful, he's present, and we're going through a pandemic? Why doesn't he stop these things? Why does sex trafficking so bad? Stop it. And yet God doesn't seemingly stop it. That's why I wrote um, Eyes to See. I think part of the answer is God's common grace. He is working in the world today. He's just not a genie that snaps his fingers and things go away. He's using humans to do it, and that's frustrating, and it's slow because humans were not always good dance partners. Okay, so you don't believe the best about God anymore. Here's the last one. You don't believe the best about yourself anymore. Right? Now listen, this is interesting. There is conviction of the Holy Spirit. So if you've been convicted during this weekend, well, welcome to life as a Christian. The, whole, the Holy Spirit goes, hmm, that's pretty good. And that seminar you went to, that's pretty good when they said that. And that, probably, that applies to you. And you're like, ah, I could probably do a better job on that one. Right? Oh, we had that talk around the lake, and I felt the Holy Spirit say, you, you really are consumed by your agenda. You need to be other-centered. That's good. That's healthy. Here's where uh, spiritual battle enters in. You're the worst. You're the worst. You're, you're the worst husband there is. You're the worst wife there's ever been. You said that to your child? Are you kidding me? Right? I'm, I'm so tempted to ask, has anybody had an argument here at Hume? Now think about how a demon would use that. You are at a Christian marriage conference and you could not keep it together for a weekend. (laughs) Guess what? We've been speaking 28 years at Family Life Marriage Conferences. Do you think there was a conference we went to we weren't particularly doing well? Yeah, of course there was. Remember, Remember, I'm a theater major, I had mime classes. I can do the silent treatment, right? We're not yellers, we just don't talk to each other, okay? We go to this marriage conference, we're in the hotel, now guess what? 7.30, there's a ballroom full of people and family life doesn't care if you're not doing well. You need to go down, you need to speak to these people, you need to share God's truth, and you need to do it right now, and then let's have a talk later about how you're doing. But right now, there's a ballroom full of people, you need to go speak to them, okay? So I looked at Noreen, and I, I tried a little bit of humor, and I said, hold my hand, it's our job. <laughs> and so Noreen took my hand, <laughs> and we walked down to the ballroom, and we actually did, I think we did a pretty good job. <laughs> Came back up to the room like, we need, we need to talk, right? Come on, that's just life, right? That is, your pastor has good days, bad days. Leaders at Hume have good days, bad days. That's why pastors are in trouble. Let me just say this very quickly. Because they can't ever be honest about it. Right? Uh, Eugene Peterson, he's the one who did the message, right? That, that great paraphrase of the Bible. He said this. I show this with my students all the time. The greatest danger to a person's soul, says Eugene Peterson, is, and I have my students try to answer it. Do you know what the answer is according to Eugene Peterson? Public speaking. Why? Because let's say Noreen's not here. I come to you, our marriage is in shambles. It's not doing well. Jason didn't know that. He, he just knows Milhoff writes on this topic. He speaks. He doesn't exactly know how our marriage is doing. He says, hey, how'd you like coming to Hume? I'm like, great. Yeah, great. I come to Hume. I get up here. I was a theater major. I, can, I have an on switch. I can kick that switch on, right? Uh, and then I go back, and you never knew what my life was like. 
That's what Eugene Peterson's talking about. Right? You, right? I got to be a Christian. We're heading to church. Right? So somebody says, how are you guys doing? Oh, God's good. Good all the time. And your spouse is like, We've all, we've all been there. But when you start to think you're the worst, that's Satan. Satan's gotten into mix. Let me just make one parenthetical comment as we're leaving. This is a little bit controversial. Listen, pornography's wrong. Let me just say that. I watched a dad be addicted to it his whole life. What it did to him, my mom, 100% wrong. Can I just say that? But Satan is masterful of saying to a man who's struggling with pornography, you can't ever come back to God. Are you kidding me? Looking at that stuff? You can't ever come back to God, and your spouse will never forgive you. So a man is like, I'm done. I crossed the line. And ladies, your addiction rates are way up among women today. I crossed the line. I can't ever come back. Let me just say this as honestly as I can. If you're hearing that voice right now, that is Satan. Why? Jesus nipped this one in the bud. In one of his most famous illustrations, he said, I'm going to imagine a Jewish son, and he's going to do the worst thing I can imagine. He's going to wish his father dead. He's going to take his inheritance. He's going to live like a Gentile with pigs. You could have painted a worse scenario for a Jewish person. Then he says, when that child starts to come back, the father runs to him. Men and women, if you're sitting there in this room and you think, I've done something I can never recover for, then you don't understand God's love. You don't get it. And go back and read the prodigal son narrative over and over and over because God will run to you. Does that make sense? Don't let Satan give you that lie. Don't let him do that, right? Right? Okay, thank you. Because I do that all the time, right? So I love the prodigal son narrative. Okay, this one. So I want to add one. If you root for Mike Krzyzewski, that is not spiritual oppression. That is demonic possession. And I fear for your soul. Next slide. All right, here we go. How in the world do we respond? Jason's writing, don't ever invite him back. Noreen, yes, him, no. All right, how do we respond? Here's a really cool thing. This comes from Charles Craft. You got to read Charles Craft once in your lifetime. Thoroughly vetted, accepted by most evangelical theologians. He's written 20 books. The one that I like is a book called I Gave You Authority. Now, Jesus totally understands we're in spiritual warfare. I wish we had time. Man, maybe we come back to human and do a whole thing on spiritual warfare. But, but you take a... But here, oh, one more applause. Right. Um, because if you read... Remember, Ephesians is a letter. There are no chapter breaks. We added that for quick reference. So when you read Ephesians in the original, chapter uh, 5 is his clearest expression on marriage. Clearest expression on marriage come from the Apostle Paul. Then it seamlessly bleeds into the armor of God. It couldn't be clearer in Paul's mind. Do marriage, you better get ready for battle because it's coming right on your doorstep. Okay, one of the things that God gives us is prayer, warfare prayer that is directed at demons. Remember, a demon can't read your mind, so we pray audibly. 
Now, this is going to be weird the first time you do it. It for sure was weird the first time me and Noreen did it. But demons need to hear you. They can't read your mind. So a warfare prayer is based on what Charles Craft calls status authority. Now, there's two different types of authority we'll talk about very quickly. Let's do the easy one, status authority. So remember in James, uh, principalities, powers, he talks about demons. That means demons live in a hierarchy, right? So they have to respond to authority. So Kraft says this, you need to use your authority. So let me just give you examples of my authority, and hopefully this makes sense. Um, I'm a professor at Biola University. Students in my class, I have status authority. When I pray warfare prayers for my students in my classes, demons have to listen. Uh, I'm a parent. I have three children. When I pray for my three boys, status authority, demons have to listen. When I pray for Noreen, she prays for me, status authority, demons have to listen. Um, I've been brought into Hume for this weekend. I have status authority this weekend to speak to demons. Now, obviously, leadership has it 24-7. I met some board members the very first day. They have a status authority 24-7 to pray for Hume. Demons have to listen. Now, here's a big question we get all the time, because I'm going to pray a warfare prayer for you as we leave. Here's, here's what people say. Well, then why, why do we need to regularly pray? Like, why can't we just pray one big status authority thing for my three kids that I never have to revisit this? Won't demons always be quiet? I get why that makes sense. My only answer to that is, if you look at the prototype prayer, the Lord's Prayer, which is to be said regularly, it seems like Jesus is saying, ask for daily needs. So I think there's a dailiness about this. And let's go to Daniel chapter 10 very quickly. Daniel is in spiritual battle, and he prays for help. Michael comes. I think it takes him weeks to get there. By the time Michael gets there, Daniel says, what's up? And Michael says, listen, God heard you the very first prayer. I've been fighting the king of Persia, a demonic figure, and it took me two, three weeks to get here. Spiritual battles for real. This is a real battle. So status authority is you pray for, if you're grandparents, you knock it out of the park. You got status authority. If you're a boss of some place, you got status authority over everybody. If you're part of the homeowners association, status authority. If you're um, pray for relatives... <laughs> Even though you're hated, <laughs> status authority. No. Right? Okay, status authority. We need to use it. But then the question was asked to craft, well, what if I don't have status authority? Does that mean I can't pray for my neighbor? No, no. Then he talked about intimacy authority. He said, no, no. So then when you get grafted onto the vine, when you have intimacy with Jesus and there's no unconfessed sin, you have intimacy authority, which means go for it. You can pray for anybody. But if there's unconfessed sin, remember Hebrews, the sin that so easily entangles us, it, it weakens your prayer. So one of my favorite vampire movies is a, a member of vampires camping in the presence of the cross. In this great Stephen King novel, a guy takes out a cross and puts it right in the vampire's face. Vampire goes, <laughs> you got to have faith and throws it away. So your sin can weaken your status authority prayers. Make sense? No, I'm sorry, your intimacy. So we need to, man, we need to have times of confession. We need to say, hey, to your spouse, listen, we need to keep short accounts. We need to get rid of sin that easily entangles us because Satan is going after our kids. 
We need to pull together. And again, if we go to Ephesians chapter 6, remember, Roman soldiers fought shoulder to shoulder. We're in a fight, and we need to all fight shoulder to shoulder. Make sense? Okay, next. Uh, One more, and then I'm going to pray. Okay, so um, this is a little bit controversial, but I think I'm on good footing with some theologians. So you know, if you went right now to the Lord's Prayer, most of your Bibles, when it comes to the very last part of the Lord's Prayer, there's an asterisk. The asterisk means that most likely a Christian scribe, when he was writing the Lord's Prayer, felt like it needed an ending. It kind of felt like it ended abruptly. So with the best of intentions, a scribe added, thine be the power in the kingdom forever and the glory forever and ever, amen. Now, what I take great comfort and like to point out to my non-Christian friends when I speak at Berkeley, UCLA, is guess what? We acknowledge when we think something was added. This is the Lord's Prayer. This is one of the most important prayers we have. We will readily admit, we think the bottom two sentences were added by a Christian scribe. We're looking out for additions to our scriptures. So take away what is debated. I think this becomes a warfare prayer. Right? So look, look at the prayer. Uh, this then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Uh, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors, Charles Kraft coming in saying, you better work on this forgiveness thing, then, and lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Jesus is saying, I just gave you a warfare prayer. When in doubt, you don't know what a warfare prayer sounds like? Break out the Lord's prayer. Okay, now, I'm gonna pray a warfare prayer over you. Why? Because leadership brought me in. They gave me the stage. Right? Now, they can take it away, by the way. They could revoke my status authority very quickly if they wanted to. But for right now, I have it, so I'm going to pray. This may sound really weird. It did for me, but the more I talk to men and women that I really respect who know the scriptures, they say, man, the American church is out of touch. Other parts of the world, they get this, and they pray this way. So I'm going to pray a prayer to the demons that are in the room, and then you need to continue the battle as you leave Hume. Make sense? Okay, demons, I come to you as a child of God. I come to you as an ambassador of Jesus Christ, not on my own power. I do not come on my own authority, but I am a child of God. I have been forgiven. I come in the authority of Jesus Christ. Demons, you know you need to listen to me. You need to listen to Jesus. You cannot choose to avoid this prayer. And I'm telling you right now, you are banished from the lives of these couples today. If there's a couple today that thinks their marriage is over, I'm telling you right now to be quiet. That is coming from the pit. God is a God of hope. God can reconcile. God can redeem. And I'm telling you demons right now, if you're trying to suggest to some couple that their marriage is over, I tell you to be quiet. That is a lie coming from you, and you are not to utter that lie for the rest of the day. I pray for a person in this audience who thinks they're the worst. They're the worst parent. They said something to their child, and they deeply regret it, and they are beating themselves up, and you are causing them to beat themselves up. Satan, demon, I tell you to be quiet. That is a lie. Yes, we sin, but we are also forgiven. Demons, you only tell half the story. You point out our sin, but you do not refer to the cross. You do not refer to justification. You do not refer to the fact that we have been forgiven past, present, and future, and that God always runs to us. 
Demons, I'm telling you right now, with the leadership of Hume, if you're saying to them that they cannot survive a pandemic, I tell you to be shut up right now. That is not true. You have overcome, God has overcome things greater than a pandemic. I pray people in this room right now who are refusing to forgive. Demons, you are making them be locked into that position. And I'm telling you right now, you are to stop it. The Holy Spirit right now is convicting their hearts, and you are not to block that conviction. Demons, if you are filling us with dread about a pandemic that will never end, that the world is spinning out of control, that is not true. God is the Alpha and the Omega. He is allowing things to happen, but we know one day, reading Scripture, just like you read Scripture, that one day there will be the heavenly city and that shalom, God's peace, will fill this world. You are not to fill us with dread any longer. I pray for every couple in this room that is listening to a voice that they shouldn't, that they would recognize it in the future, that they would hear your voice, demon, they would recognize it, and they would fight back. Demons, on the ride home today, you are to be quiet. Holy Spirit, we are so thankful that we are forgiven. We are not perfect. We know our marriage is worship, and we know we've got a lot of work to do. But you say to us, perfect love casts out fear. We are loved perfectly by God, and we are to embrace that. When Paul said to the church at Ephesus, where do you start this Christian life? He said, I want you to be rooted and grounded in Jesus' love. I pray for every couple in this room, they would feel the love of Jesus in a distinctly special way as they leave Hume. Jesus, thank you that you've not abandoned us. Thank you that you've given us spiritual weapons to fight this battle, and we pray that we'd be in it to fight it, and that means we cannot turn on each other as Christians. We need to set aside disputable matters, things that good Christians just flat out disagree with. We need to let Christians disagree with each other, and it doesn't destroy our unity, because when our unity is destroyed, Satan gets a foothold. Father, be with us today. Thank you that you never leave us. Thank you for Hume. Thank you for the sacrifices. We all know the needs they have, and let us be a small part in meeting those needs. So Jesus, be with us. Thank you that we are in this fight, but not alone. We pray in your precious name. Amen.